Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Alan Adamson, who is the founder of Brand Simple Consulting and an adjunct assistant professor at NYU Stern School of Business. A noted industry expert and author of three books about branding and marketing, including his most recent titled Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World. Alan is also a contributor to Forbes.com and the Huffington Post. I'm bringing him on the program today because of his article, What Jewish Nonprofits Can Learn from the World's Most Successful Brands, which he co-authored with Karen Rutkowski the founder and president of Impact NPO, which gave some key areas where Jewish nonprofits can improve their branding. We'll get more into that in a moment. But first, I want to welcome Alan to the program. Welcome. Thank you, Michelle. Pleasure to join you. Great. So we're going to start, as we always do, just with your personal story of how you got into this work. Like most things in life, luck has a lot to do with it and being at the right place in the right time. I don't think folks want to grow up anymore and go into marketing or branding. But I uh, went to school. I was going to be a filmmaker, and to my disappointment, Steven Spielberg didn't make me a huge starting offer. And while doing some films and doing some photography at school, I realized that while I enjoyed it, I was up against some incredibly talented and far more committed classmates. While I enjoyed it coming out, I realized that filmmaking was a hobby, not a vocation. And so I went to business school, studied finance. And coming out of business school, I found sort of a good mix initially between the world of creative and business, and that was in advertising. Not quite in the Mad Men days, but pretty close to Mad Men days. And I joined an agency called Ogilvy and Mather, which is still around today, and learned a lot about how to tell stories about products in commercials, usually mini movies. And I did that for a number of years, learning quite a bit across a range of types of products. Then I went on to what's called brand management. I worked for Unilever, where I became the client, and I learned how to market bar soaps and under detergent. Subsequently, after a nice experience at Unilever, I went back to the advertising business, worked on Procter & Gamble. After working with Procter & Gamble in the advertising business, I joined Landor, which is a global brand and branding consulting firm. Spent many years there helping clients across categories, from profits to nonprofits, from big companies to small companies. And left about two years ago to write my latest book called Shift Ahead, as you mentioned kindly. In it, we looked at the challenges facing many, many companies to stay relevant and current with consumers. So that probably more than you asked for, but is how I ended up in the brand business. Not a straight line, but it's been a delightful and challenging journey over the years. Yeah, and we can get into the book a little bit more, but it's such a case study in so many different places as far as the experience that you bring to this topic. I'm curious how you came to write this article with Karen. How did that partnership come about? Karen has done marketing research on projects with me over the years, mostly for profit organizations. And we were talking one day about some of the challenges facing nonprofits and perhaps what they could learn from the other side of the fence. Excellent. So I actually want to read like some of the highlighted points from that article. We can kind of dive into a few of them. You have five points that you outlined here. So the first is start thinking and acting like a brand. If you target everyone, you will matter to no one. Five seconds, that's all you've got. Don't ask your target what they want. Ask them to complain. Be brilliant. Only extraordinary experiences get shared. So which of these, if you were to kind of pull one out, would you think it specifically in the nonprofit world, are we doing wrong, is most important to focus on or think about? 
one of the largest challenges facing many, many nonprofits is the focusing on what do you say as the elevator doors closing? Most mm-hmm. nonprofits do so many good things. There was a huge pressure to tell everybody all the wonderful things that the nonprofit does, how it helps, how it changes lives. And those are all terrific stories. But, you know, one thing for sure in the world of marketing is that if I were to go in when I first started in advertising and if I went into a creative director's office and I said, look, I'd like you to do a great ad for this product. And I handed the creative director five pages of all the key points of why this product was the best thing ever. She would have crumpled up the paper and thrown it at me. Because to tell a good story or to break through in marketing communications, you need to be ruthlessly focused, laser focused. You need to get your idea down to a simple handle that people can understand and get as the doors and the elevator are closing. I like to talk often about my work over the years with Federal Express and FedEx does many things well, but they got their core elevator speech down to they want to deliver absolute certainty. That's their promise. They do lots right. of things. They, have, they could tell you about how many planes they have and how many hubs and how many people. And they have two-day delivery, one-day delivery, three-day delivery. But because they are laser-focused on first ensuring everyone gets there about absolute certainty, they have the ability then to get that story out there. So the number one challenge, I think, facing nonprofits is to get to the point of their story. If a story is what you want to communicate and brand is your story and branding is how you get it out there, the first step is to get your story really simple and sticky. Mm -hmm. And that's hard because two forces are fighting nonprofits. One, they do so many good things. It's hard to pick one. And there's a tendency to tell you everything. And two is they're often run by groups of very committed leaders who each want to be courteous and everyone's opinion matters and everyone is volunteering. Yes. (laughs) So you don't have many people at a nonprofit that can say, well, I've heard everything and there are 10 great things we could say, but here's the one most important thing. And so because of those two dynamics, they tend to do so many great things no one wants to hurt anyone's feelings and no one wants to edit and say, no, we're going to stand for this and this is where we're going. They start off in the end zone. You know, they're already behind the eight ball when they develop a creative brief or a story about what they want to get across, four sentences, a paragraph, a page long. So often I'd get creative briefs from agencies, from nonprofits that were a great read over three or four pages, but mm-hmm. you cannot translate three or four pages into a soundbite. And I think one of the things in the Jewish community that we really struggle with is our history of being relevant in a time where an umbrella organization or a catch-all organization was really needed. And so we have things like our federations or you know umbrella movement-specific organizations that it made sense at some time to do everything, right? To fund a little bit of Israel, to fund a little bit of education, to fund a little bit of this and do six or seven different areas or things that trying to figure out, right, where that kind of laser focus is is really difficult. And people are, I think, coming to a point where they're like, well, why would I give you my money to pass it on to another, you know, organization? Why don't I just give my money, you know, to that organization or to my local chapter or things like that? And without that laser focus of we do X thing and being able to brand that and market that out, you know, it's kind of also a structural issue that I think a lot of our organizations are struggling with. Exactly. And there's no right or wrong answer because you can't ask a donor as to what's something. If you show a donor a list of 10 things, getting them to pick out the most important is hard. They have the same trouble. So you can't often research your way there. Clients often default to, let's go do some research. But 
often the customer or the target or the person you're trying to raise money for or get involved in your organization can't give you the answer. Like many things, the theory is really easy. Get to a simple, sticky idea, five, eight, ten words that is the beginning of the story that gets people excited, and then stay laser focused on that to get your audience hooked in. And once they're hooked in, you can tell them more. Mm-hmm. But if you try to tell them more before they're ready to hear more, before they have a place to follow you, as you said, what you stand for. Let's focus a little bit on target audiences, because you kind of talk about it twice in this article. Once about, you know, you can't be everything to everyone. And I was very intrigued by this, you know, don't ask your target what they want, ask them to complain. So elaborate a little bit on that for us. Let me start on the second one. If you ask most people what they want in any given category, I'll go way back to the amendment is when we were asking consumers what they wanted in a dishwashing liquid, they would just play back what the competitors were advertising. I want lots of suds. I right, right. Yeah. So they're going to just play back what they think you want to hear or what they've been told is important. But the way you get past that is to observe the problems they're having or what they're actually doing, not necessarily what they're saying. And so, again, back in the Mad Men days when I was working on Procter & Gamble's Dawn dishwashing liquid, it was just introduced and palm olive owned the category and everyone was talking about keeping your hands nice and suds. And they looked at a problem and said the biggest problem people are having washing their dishes was not do the suds last or does their hands get irritated. But, you know, grease was sticking to everything. They couldn't get grease off cookware. And so they just said, well, Dawn takes grease out of your way. And all of a sudden, that shot up to be the number one reason. No one had said it before. And it's like that in anything. So if you ask a consumer what's important, you're not going to get as far as if you ask them what troubles them, what problems they have, talk to you about how they go about doing things. So to some extent, the best marketers tend to be more observational rather than just questioning people. How people behave, what they do in in the aisle, what they pick up, how they do their dishes, how they do their laundry, how they drink their coffee. And because they're really great at observing and they focus on the problems, many marketers are more successful than just asking people to fill in the blank, why would you want to buy this product? Right. And the idea that your customer doesn't know what they want, you're there to tell them what they want. Steve Jobs was the most famous person to say that. And you you couldn't imagine if you went back and when Steve introduced the first iPhone, people in the industry were saying, you know, why would anyone pay $600 for a phone when you can buy a Nokia for $100? Mm-hmm. Nokia had the whole market. And people said, that's stupid. You know, and the BlackBerry people were saying, why would anyone buy a phone that has a screen? You know, people need the clicking of the letters. That's what they tell us they're important. Right. But obviously, Apple had a different idea of you know, selling, of course, a telephone, but a tablet computer. And the rest is history. So, but it's like that too. And if you just deliver what people ask for, you rarely, you have to do that sort of, we call it a table stake, but you need to go beyond that. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to transition to the first part of my question about your target audience in a way that I know we talked about this when we had our preliminary call. I know this isn't necessarily your area of expertise, but there's kind of this brand question that keeps floating around as far as using a Hebrew word in your name when you're starting a new project. And a lot of innovative organizations that are coming out have names like The Kitchen or Upstart or Gather DC that are, you know, very obvious to anybody not 
Jewish. And so maybe you look at their website or what they do or their logo. So a little bit about, you know, if an organization does choose to use a Hebrew name, does choose to identify in that way, not that they're limiting their target audience, but is it that they're being more intentional about that target audience and that people who want a more generic, less Jewish sounding name are trying to broaden that target audience? How does that kind of play with that element? Well, Michelle, it's always easy on the backseat to say this and that, and there are no easy answers. But let's start at the first part, which is in the world of corporate and product marketing, you know, besides focusing on what you want to stand for, the absolute certainty, you also need to focus on who is going to be the most interested in that promise. So you need to define, well, lots of people may want to ship a package overnight. Success is finding the people that need to ship a package overnight all the time. And to them, it's the most important thing. And marrying those two worlds together. So the first step is you ask any marketer, who do you want to appeal to? But I want to sell to everybody. You know, I don't want to turn anybody off. But it sounds like, of course, we're going to sell to everybody. But since the beginning of marketing, success was both defining your promise and defining who you wanted to appeal to. That doesn't mean it's going to not appeal to other groups, but you have to hit what we call your sweet spot. So then jumping into the next part of your question, for some target audiences, a Hebrew name is mission critical. If it's not Mm -hmm. feeling Jewish enough, that may be the most important criteria. It doesn't matter what the cause is. If they feel it, you know, if it's called Group DC or Gather DC, I think you said. It was actually, their, their name originally was Gather the Jews. And they probably wouldn't fly today in the market. Right, <laughs> right. But so, you know, there's one other factor, as you know, which is paint a picture psychographically and demographically. We want to appeal to Michelle. She's this old. She works here. She thinks this. Because the more specific you can be, then you can focus all your efforts and your promise in getting through to him or her. But you can't discount the fact that once you understand who you're really talking to, then winning that person is about being authentic and delivering on that promise. So Mm. if for this ideal target who you focus on, a Jewish or Hebrew name is tied to them believing it's authentic and really feeling this is a worthwhile cause, then you have to do that. Mm. And you have to accept that a whole bunch of other people might find it alienating or might not connect with it, but you'll be better off really connecting with your core target because success is being, I had a conversation with these, I don't want to get too far off track, with this chief marketing officer for the book of the New York Times. And the New York Times, like most media public, is facing a challenge. You know, why pay for the news on the New York Times? Mm-hmm. And I get the same news everywhere, Facebook, Instagram. You know, why should I pay for this? So after a lot of analysis, they realized that if you're just a casual news reader, they're not going to win you. You know, that you may read the New York Times, but if I charged you a dollar a month, you'll say, no, I'll get it free on the internet. So they decided that to win and make the business of news gathering for the New York Times viable today, they have to only target people who are incredibly connected to the New York Times, who Mm. not just read a few headlines, but spend an hour a day reading all the opinions really digging into it because once they know you read a lot and they of course they know exactly what you're reading be it on an iphone or an ipad or even in the paper once you're into it that deeply and then i call you up and i say michelle you spent an hour a day with new york times now would you pay a dollar a month the answer is of course i'll pay three dollars a month same is true in our world of doing cause related or nonprofits. what you want to do is find the person that is so much in tune and open to what you stand for that they won't just donate a dollar, they'll donate more than a dollar. 
everyone talks about give me the facts and tell me why this coffee tastes better and tell me how many Colombian beans this one had versus how many Colombian beans I would have. You know, they need the rationale to justify the emotional, but most brand decisions are made emotional. So if you can't emotionally connect with a specific target, don't think you could change their mind just by dumping more facts on them. Right. I'm going to actually elaborate a little bit on this since you brought it up because I think it matches pretty well with another thing that I've explored a lot on this program is membership dues at a synagogue or even membership dues to our umbrella organizations or to really anything. Because I would argue that with the New York Times and kind of the branding question, you know, when and why would I give to the New York Times? I've never been a subscriber of newspaper news, right? I'm a millennial who, you know, grew up with it all for free. But the second that they stood for journalism in an era where they were being villainized, right? So kind of changing that narrative from being, we are the people that put a newspaper on your front porch to we're the people that break the stories that aren't found other places that we are. And not even just progressive, but like we are a certain type of voice in the news and our people who we employ are able to get X, Y, or Z access or stories or information, right? Then I'm called and asked for a donation and I'm more than willing to give $54. Forget a dollar a month, right? You know, ramping up kind of a donation side of it. So, you know, that kind of ties in with how I talk about synagogues because, you know, there's some that are trying to move from you know, you pay the $2,500 membership and you're a member to you're a member and, you know, you give what you can to the value that you participate in and that you see in the community and you raise the money in more of a development sense than in a subscription model sense. I want to hear at the New York Times, there was kind of this sense that now they stood for something different right. than just your daily news briefings, right? Exactly. So it's never, of course, just one thing. So the first step was to get the target right, to get the people that were not just mildly interested in the news, but really passionate about Mm -hmm. the analysis. The other thing that's happening in the world of marketing branding, you just alluded to, it's happening across all categories. It used to be you could just talk about what you did. So we find the news around the world and give you all the news that's fit to print. Later on, you could talk about how you do it. Well, we do it because we have reporters and well-trained journalists. And you can apply that to a synagogue. What do we do? We provide a congregation and a service how we do it, we have great rabbis, but more and more today, against particularly for millennials and younger, just what and how are no longer enough to create an emotional connection. Right. You need to answer why. Mm-hmm. You need to define your purpose, what you stand for, not what you do, not how you do it, but what do you stand for? And so, of course, the Times has also benefited from that because, you know, besides journalism integrity and fact checking and maybe doing a little better job on the house story. So when you read something there, you might not immediately think or believe they're fake news. But the other piece is that they now have more of a purpose mm-hmm, right. to support the pillars of democracy by being an independent free press and holding groups accountable and spending a lot of money on deep research and doing investigative reporting like Emily Steele just did when she broke the Harvey Weinstein case. It took mm-hmm. you know, lots of money, lots of time, an editor that said, Emily, keep on digging, keep on digging a year. And she created a story that has changed the fabric of this country. And part of that is based on a purpose that it was a mission for the times, well beyond just saying that. This is what happened yesterday. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And and so same is true with any brand today. Brands today need to identify not only what they do, and ideally it should be unique, but in the world of technology, if you say, what do we do? We have a tablet computer or a small phone. How you do it? Everyone has the same chip. (laughs) Right. (laughs) screen made by Samsung. You have to get at the why. And why is a really easy thing to say, 
but really tricky to execute. Because you, like everyone else, has grown up in a world of lots of communications, and you have a nose for authenticity and fake. And if an organization says, we're doing this because we believe in this, and this is our purpose, and it's not really authentic, either over time it will unravel, or you, or like most people, they're so tuned to sensing this out, will quickly see it as a show. And it won't hold together. It will be seen as not authentic, and it will probably backfire worse. Well, that brings me to the last point in this article, which kind of left me a little perplexed. I mean, I'll reiterate, you know, the be brilliant and only extraordinary experiences get shared. I don't think that there's a lot of people who go out about doing their work to make it not extraordinary <laughs> or try to make really bad experiences for people. So what is it that kind of sets that apart enough, as you kind of mentioned, that is a shareable moment that is something that, how do you measure whether or not what you're doing is extraordinary? Like, how do you know that? So one bit of context without getting too much into the world of theory. It used to be that people got information about, do they want to join this synagogue? Do they want to support this charity? Or do they want to buy this coffee or read this paper? By watching advertising, sitting at home and somebody saying, the New York Times is the best paper, the synagogue is the best synagogue. You know, somebody would tell you and you would just listen to it in a mass media. And of course, what's changed is it's gone back to the future. People Before that happened, people used to go to their quote-unquote backyard fence and ask their neighbor, what do you recommend in a newspaper or a synagogue? So now almost every decision is driven through word of mouth. And if you study word of mouth, everyone's trying to generate it. But the theory is incredibly simple. People only share extraordinarily good or bad experiences. You fly from New York to LA and you get there sort of on time and they don't lose your bag and no one spills anything on you. (laughs) <laughs> you go to dinner with your friends, you'll say, I'm, I can't, how's a flight? Fine. Right. Whatever on, I really don't remember. I think it was Delta. Now, if it's extraordinarily bad, they lose your bag, say you're five hours late, you know, they spill a lasagna on you. The first thing you're going to tell people is, you know, look at this tomato paste on my shirt and Delta did this. And then they, well, know, the first you know, thing you're going to do is post about it on Facebook <laughs> after. <laughs> you have yeah. selfies of yourself and you can't wait to tell the story. And the same as if they do something extraordinary that you're late and they know you're late and they take you off the plane in the back and they move you to the front. They have a golf cart there. They've rented a car for you. They've called the restaurant and said, you're going to be late. Oh, yeah. if only. What airline do you fly on? No, <laughs> no, no so I get what you're saying. Yeah. Anything in between doesn't count. Yeah. And so a lot of marketers face this challenge. They sit down and they say, well, we need a Facebook page that so will do that. We need a website, we'll pay to do that. We'll have one person do social media and answer tweets. And we'll do a journal ad for this fundraiser. We'll right. do a fundraiser event. And we'll have a good guest speaker and we'll pick the right flowers out. And we'll decide we'll serve chicken and not fish. And so everything is professionally done. Nothing is right. wrong with anything. But Rarely does anything now hit the radar. So you look at the website, it's so ordinary. The journal ad's nice. The committee has nice people on it. The speaker's sort of interesting. You don't break through. You don't get anywhere. And so today to succeed, what we counsel clients on the dark side, the business side, is yes, do a good <laughs> job on everything. <laughs> <That's> um, okay. <laughs> but pick one or two touch points where you're going to try to really hit it out of the park. Right. And that doesn't mean you, you, know, you don't try to do well across everything, but if you're going to have the world's best event, then you just can't follow the rule book. You can't say, well, we're going to have appetizers and these flowers and this speaker. You've got to say, what are we going to do so the next day at the water cooler, people right. are going to get on and share a picture or forget the water cooler when they get online and say, here was you know, blank speaking at this event. And not only did the speaker speak incredibly, they came into the audience and answered questions. They 
had people from their organizations come up and spend time with them. You have to go beyond average. Right. Seems like like the backwards design thinking, right? You start and, and, with like, what are those amazing experiences that they're going to walk away with? And it's not going to be how beautiful the flowers were in the center of the table. Right. Where your time is going to be spent worrying, right? right. One of the great people we spoke to for the book is Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, not to plug the New York Times throughout the entire thing, but <laughs> he's a Thomas. And one of his phrases is average is over. And he mm-hmm. talks about it in business. You know, if you're just doing average, you're going to be outsourced somewhere and somebody's going to do something that's for So every organization needs to figure out what's the story that are people are going to share and what's going to be their extraordinary story. We were very fortunate when my son was bar mitzvah. He did a mitzvah project of uh, building a well in Africa using okay. Israeli technology to change a village. You didn't have water. All the women had to go to the lake and or the river and bring the water in. Massive challenges, and the water was never clean. And so this Israeli company, Innovation Africa, gave them the technology and built this solar-powered well. And it was a great charity, but we had the privilege of being able to go visit that well. Wow with the family. You know, we're very lucky to be able to do that. But when we went there and were greeted by the community, had the entire community talk to us, and you could literally see, then, of course, when my son and we all got on social media, we had something extraordinary mm-hmm. to share. Now, the organization was really helpful in setting all this up, but they allowed, rather than just giving some money and then getting an email back saying you made a big difference in this village, we as a family got to see the impact this one piece of technology done by Innovation Africa head on this village. Because then we shared it with all of our friends. It created a power touch point, if you would. They do a lot of things well, but figuring out what's your, we call it marketing, what's your signature moment? Apple had it with a genius bar. (laughs) And, you know, what's your genius bar idea? Mm -hmm. Event, be it your advertising, be it who you have on your social media, but find your signature bar signature event. Because if you don't, you could do everything right and be invisible. Yeah. It's just kind of thinking about those touch points and there's going to be mundane aspects of what it is that you're doing when you're creating these experiences. What are those extraordinary shareable moments? And everyone has it, even a synagogue. We go to a synagogue that does many things right. But the one thing I think they do better than most is incorporate music and singing Mm -hmm. into the service. Uh, What what synagogue is it? It's BJ on the West side. Nice. And, you know, they've always used music and as a core signature touch point for BJ. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they they shouldn't do everything else right from education to food pantry they run to, you know, I think every congregation. More more simple than that, right? Than, you know, walking in and someone's greeting you and it's easy to find a prayer book and there's no garbage on the sea, right? Like those are the mundane pieces that, you know, support those. So you have to make sure nothing's holding you back, break the anchor. So you have to have all the prayer books and it has to be well lit and the air conditioning. You have to do all that, but then pick one or two things that are going to be your signature bar, your genius bar. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before returning to my conversation with Alan, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode. Aliza Klein is the founding executive director of One Table, which is a platform for millennials to end their week with intention and create unique Shabbat dinners. She discusses with me the unique model of this organization of making do-it-yourself Judaism accessible to all who want it. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. And in Shabbat mornings, I got chocolate milk. And I got chocolate milk in a crazy straw in the special cup. And that was the only time of the week that I got that treat. So there was an immediate positive association between the celebration of Shabbat and chocolate and happiness. 
and treats. And I did not realize until much later in my life that that was highly uncommon and that a lot of people either had no association or one that was less joyous. And it's been part of my life's work to be like, what, this is fun. This is good. It tastes good. It feels good. Brings you happiness. How can we do this so that not everybody likes chocolate milk and crazy straws? So what's joyous to you? Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Aliza in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Alan. So I want to turn a little bit to your book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And as I mentioned before, it's really just a collection of, you know, stories of different companies and how they kind of got through either challenges or didn't get through challenges. You kind of pull from there kind of an arc. And I'm not going to talk about every piece, but I do want to just give the titles to the chapters because I think it gives a nice arc story. And then I kind of want to focus on the bad part. So chapter one, you have, you know, just why this book. Chapter two, Heed the Red Flags. Chapter three, The Road Barriers. Chapter four, Ready the Organization for a Shift. Chapter five, Making Sense of the Road Ahead. Chapter six, What Shift to Make? It Depends on What's Ahead. Chapter seven, Leadership. Chapter eight, Success Stories. And chapter nine, Success is Never Final. So it's such a beautiful story, what you've created kind of in this arc. And I want to just kind of start at the beginning because I think a lot of our listeners, although I interview a lot of executive level people, I don't think our listeners are all executive level people. And so when you're in an organization where you don't necessarily have all of the power, how do you kind of identify these red flags or road barriers? How do you look inside your organization and start to pick these things out and say, okay, like how do I in my powerlessness (laughs) try to help my organization tackle X area or Y area? How do you start looking at your organization differently through the lens of branding? The first thing that came up when we did that, we researched over a hundred firms. And the first point to make is that Everyone knows they need to change to stay relevant. It's not new news, but of the... I don't know, it might be new news in our community, but... You know, no one wants to be yesterday, your father's Oldsmobile, that, you know, it's right. not a good thing in marketing. But even though everyone knows the theory, what we found are most organizations fail. Mm-hmm. And they fail many ways. And one of the ways they fail is they don't see themselves becoming obsolete, irrelevant. Talk a lot about it in these chapters. Yeah, you know, they think they look good in the same sports jacket they've worn forever. And they don't right. Look. It's like when you're in your kitchen at home, the wallpaper looks fine. It's only when you look at it in a photograph saying, what's that yellow wallpaper up there? So the first well, thing We have is, an $8 million endowment and we're right. raising $50 million. What do you mean we're failing, right? Exactly. Because they wait for the money to flip. We talk about that. Sales decline is a not a leading indicator, a lagging indicator. By the time people stop buying the magazine, it was almost too late. So if you're just waiting for sales, and that's the other thing, most companies don't change unless there's a burning platform. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll do last year, work last year, let's just this year for the event, we'll serve chicken and not fish. That will change. Right. <laughs> That'll be <laughs> um, Instagrammable. <laughs> and so the most important thing is in the road barriers, and is realize that most organizations operate like Marty Crane in Frasier. You know, mm-hmm. Marty Crane liked his chair. He's comfortable. If you do a lot of marketing over the years, you know, people always prefer the familiar to the new. Mm-hmm. And so you have to realize that gravity prevents you from changing. And that every day you've got to wake up and realize you've got gravity. And if you ask people to do something new, they'll always prefer to do what they did yesterday. Yeah, I was going to say, especially because, and I think a lot of our organizations, we have people who are so dedicated to their organizations and have been for 30 years. 
you know, or 15 years and have known it how it was and that this kind of legacy of it, right. you can't and you get, you break get out of it. And internal. That's yeah. So if you're a young person in an organization, the most important thing you do is bring the outside in. More and more organizations that get into trouble, get into trouble because the leadership doesn't walk the halls of the store, doesn't talk to consumers, doesn't look for problems like where we started. Right. What don't you like about our product? What don't you like what's going on? The biggest challenge is that most organizations live in a bubble. And if you want to help them see red flags or even, you know, help them with the barriers, get them out of the bubble. Jewish community undercover boss. Exactly. <laughs> coming your way. That's true. The other big one, at least in business, is golden handcuffs. Again, if the money's coming in, no right. one's got a problem. And if you wait till your fuel tank's empty, you've probably waited too long. Right. So is it, you know, gather the research, have something very, you know, well thought out and presentable before kind of presenting a, an idea of a shift or a change? It's always harder to sell change than it is to stay the status quo. Right. When I was in brand management, it was much harder to get the company to invest differently or do a line extension or change a product. If you went in and said, last year we did these five things, it worked. And next year we're going to do the same five things, but we're going to add 5%. That was right. quick, a quick meeting. <laughs> we're going to make a sharp right turn. Because most companies, and I talk about in the book, are on cruise control. You know, it's like having Google do the driving for you. You're really not paying attention to the road ahead. So how do we do it, Alan? Tell us. Well, the, you know, <laughs> help us one is the cognizant of all this and yeah. realize that you have, you know, massive headwinds coming at you when mm-hmm. the change is hard. Right. And, and as you said, don't underestimate how much rocket fuel you're going to need. And the bigger the organization, the harder it is to make small shifts. One of the stories was National Geographic. And they were huge. They were an institution since 1888. And getting them to realize that the world was changing, even though they had discovery networks killing them two blocks away in Bethesda, it took a long time to do that. So uh, start early, make sure you're diligent about it. Have a sense of where the world's going. Predicting what's coming next is challenging, but not impossible. Many people are pretty good at saying what's coming down the road. If you watch television, the old episodes of Star Trek, they were pretty good at predicting mm-hmm. flip phones and not quite beaming you up to the moon, right. but lots of what was there. Same with 2001. The trick is when. But you're better off being a little early than being too late. Mm-hmm. So the first step in setting the stage is figuring out what's on the road ahead, what's coming. And to do that, you need to get to the fringe. You need to speak to people that are outside of your bubble, if you would. Don't speak mm-hmm. to the three people that are in the organization. Talk to five friends. Talk to people that would never join the organization. Go to the problem. Right. Find out people that hate you and why they would never join your organization. Get out of the city. Go to the suburbs. Go to a different state. And once you figure out where to go, then you have to figure out what it takes to win. Because mm-hmm. a lot of success, or so the difference between winners and people that try to shift and don't shift, is being really clear what we talked about earlier, what brilliant execution looks like. And if you don't have the right skill set, Get it. One of the interesting stories we had was with the CEO of Hasbro, and Hasbro owns Monopoly and Risk. And they were struggling, and they brought in, as a new CEO, this person who was in their film unit in Los Angeles doing mm-hmm. small films. And the organization, Providence Rhode Island, you know, they went crazy. How can you bring somebody in from Hollywood? They didn't know the difference between Risk and Sorrow. They had no idea, how, you know, what the tin cup symbol is in Monopoly. This is, you know, crazy. They don't know the toy business. They don't know right. the toy fair. But he knew the movie business, and he brought in the culture of Hollywood and merged it together with Hasbro to reinvent Hasbro, and now they're successful. So part of what made it successful was not realizing that toys are changing and kids aren't playing board games anymore, that they're on iPads. Everyone sees that. 
but they were able to get the skill set, as we call it, the DNA inside the company to be able to execute. Well, and I think it's an interesting example because it makes me think of that and Skittles. So Skittles changed their green flavor from lime to green apple seemingly overnight, right? Mm-hmm. No real campaign. Nobody really knew about it. Still called original, right? But now, you know, lime was green apple. Monopoly did a whole campaign. Vote for what new thimble you want. Like, we're getting rid of this one. Nobody seems too sad. What do you think? Oh, we're, br- I don't know what they ended up deciding, but we're bringing in this because that's what you told us. And now you're bought into, oh my God, it's a cat now, right? I got to go buy it because now there's a new cat figure and I voted for the cat. And isn't that so exciting? Right. So kind of the dichotomy between a company that decides to make a change in a very public Or one way. that drank too much social media Kool-Aid and felt that it, right. <laughs> the difference in people liking the symbol and actually spending 19.99 on a board game. Yeah. You, know, you have to sort of know where you want to go. And the other driver of success was speed. You know, as the world turns faster and faster and change destroys every category faster and faster, companies that are slow to change fail. We had a number of conversations with Facebook going through some tough times now. But when Facebook was looking to buy Instagram, they were really bought it. And people said, they're crazy. How would you spend this much so fast? You're just a brand new company. You're spending all this money. But they had seen the data, how many pictures were being shared. They knew their users were going to do this. And they knew if they didn't buy it, somebody else would. And Mm -hmm. it's a game of speed in Silicon Valley. So the other rule for success or the other principle was to move faster than warp speed. Yeah, and I do. I mean, I think the Jewish community runs a little slower, and I think that's okay, but I think it's moving. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you know, you're actually going somewhere. You know, one of the things you have to get used to when you go from working from a, in the corporate world to a nonprofit is I, I struggle, which is this pace of business and the pace mm-hmm. of change. Right. Some of it's because consensus building takes time. Mm-hmm. Some of it is because lack of decision-making. Some of it is because they've never faced the same competitive pressure that if they don't change, they're going to be right. obsolete. So change I, sort of sneaks up on them. So I wanted to focus kind of lastly on Chapter 7 on leadership. So in the Jewish communal data gathering world, we're kind of looking at a future of about, I think it's something like 60 to 70% of our top leadership is going to turn over in the next 10 years. And you have people who are going to come in with that power to look at things and say, we're going to start doing things differently, right? With the branding, with our message, with how it is that we're doing what we're doing. What makes for a successful leader in that kind of new, coming into a new position where they're trying to help make this shift and, and as new leadership starts to cycle into our community? Everyone talks about leadership being key, and it was a driving differentiator between success and failure and shifting to keep ahead. One of the characteristics of leaders that were able to do this was everyone talks about a leader needing to have some vision and see what's coming. But the leaders that we spoke to that really did this best had what we refer to as peripheral vision. Everyone, you know, somebody who was in a toy business was laser focused on the toy business, but it took Brian with a peripheral vision of looking at entertainment and technology to lead that organization right. So one of the characteristics is have leaders that are focused on not only what's right in front of them, but what's around them and off to the side mm-hmm. because it's never that clear where your category is going. Hmm. The other characteristic was the ability to let the force be with you, Luke Skywalker, because many leaders are incredibly risk averse, as all of us are. And the choices, do you go left or right, or do you make this change or that change, are really hard to make. They're mm-hmm. often, if you research them and talk to people, you get to a 4951 and you could forever be in that 
you know, do I go left or right? And, you know, one of the leaders we spoke to, several of them, whether it's Fred Smith of FedEx or Bill Marriott or others, part of their life was, look, I made money and I've lost it all a few times. Right. The worst case scenario, I've already lived that. Or yeah. one of the leaders, Ed Vick, he said, I commanded a PT boat in Vietnam and people shooting at me. So if I make a bad decision here, what's the worst that's going to happen? I get fired? I'm not going to get killed. Right. And so it's a bit of that ability to say, it's better to try and fail than to agonize. One of the, you know, road barriers is analysis paralysis. So mm-hmm. here we'll be able to say, look, let's try it. If it doesn't work, we'll regroup and go somewhere else. But most organizations tend to overanalyze. And so in the world we live in, beta testing, and it's better to do it and adjust on the fly mm-hmm. than it is to stay in the conference room and review another 70-page deck. Right. Or even the idea, you know, I think sometimes when organizations maybe go through a strategic plan or they're presented with a big idea, it's terrifying because it's so huge. And so the idea of, well, no, let's scale this down. What is a test of this model? Right. Let's get out and try and learn from it. Yeah, let's learn from it. Let's work out, our, work out our kinks. I think a lot of organizations and leaders can't see those smaller steps and hear an idea and think, oh my God, we can't just upend everything and radically change. Exactly. When I was growing up in the world of marketing, we'd have our annual marketing meeting. We'd spend three days doing the plan, a three-year plan. And once we had the plan, we just ran and do. Now, if you talk to leaders at Facebook or Google, they have a Monday morning all-hands meeting. They Mm -hmm. talk about real issues and they make real decisions. They call the play on the field. You know, yes, they know strategically what their purpose is and where they're going, but they are adjusting agilely every week to changing situations, not here's our annual operating plan and now let's just go do this. And that change of tempo is mission critical for success in today's world. And lots of nonprofits are still stuck in the world of, well, this is our three-year strategic plan and we're on year two and we're just going to finish it. Yeah. (laughs) Not to think of it as a living document. Yeah, 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 you go back to Well, there are so many more topics that I know we could talk about, but I want to kind of learn a little more about you. You mentioned, you know, kids, a spouse, a consulting business. So what are some ways that you keep it all together, keep it balanced, get everything done? And yeah. It's hard to keep balance. I think certainly in the last 10 years or my kids kept me honest, keep me in touch with what's going on. You have to create your own barriers because work now is 24-7. As long as you're carrying a phone or small handheld computer. Right. <laughs> the tendency is to work 24-7 every day. And lots of organizations, yeah, that's what's required to succeed. But you need to create your own barriers. You need to both put the battery in the charger yourself. You need to take vacation. And, you know, part of what I think has driven my success is I've been unfortunate to be able to get out of the office, to be able to go to meetings, to go talk. Part of the fun of this book was interviewing more than 100 people and learning about different businesses. You know, I think success today is about your ability to do continuous learning. Mm-hmm. There's a story in there about the Greenwich Library and how it reinvents itself. And it's reinventing itself because people in Greenwich don't need to borrow books, of course, anymore. They need to constantly be relearning because the right. field they trained in is going to be gone in six weeks or six years. I like generally solving what I call nonlinear problems. Often when clients come to me, if you add up all the numbers, you don't get to an answer. It's not obvious. Right. Three or four good choices, and you have to figure out how to navigate something that's more creatively conceptual in mm-hmm. terms of the solution rather than, well, this answer is 51 and this is 49, so obviously we go that way. Right. Yeah, so is your book on sale now? Yeah, I know you didn't want to ago. plug it too much. Yeah, it came out two weeks ago. <laughs> but it's so it. great with so many wonderful examples and stories, and I think sometimes you can read a book that's conceptual and you can only get so much out of it, and when you really kind of hear these real yeah, life yeah. examples. 
Well, we have some famous stories from BlackBerry or Kodak or Xerox. We look to get stories from public Greenwich Library or nonprofits or smaller startups and bigger because I thought we could learn and it turns out you could learn little things from everybody and sometimes the learning comes from places you don't expect it. Great. So give me some advice. What advice do you have for our Jewish professionals out there in the field trying to make a difference? I'll end with this piece of advice which came up a lot. Most organizations are playing tennis and not playing golf. What do I mean by that? When I was at Unilever, I was very concerned with what Procter & Gamble was doing and what Colgate was doing. More of the conversations were around what are our competitors doing? They must know something I don't, which is like tennis. When you're playing tennis, when I'm playing tennis badly, if I want to play less badly, I try to hit the ball with a person's mouth. When I'm trying to play golf badly, I'm less concerned with what my partner is doing. I'm more concerned with holding the driver and where the ball is and what the wind is. And, you know, so you're more in touch with the market. Mm. And I think lots of organizations get totally fixated on the bubble they live in. Look at two or three organizations that like them, talk to the same organizations, get very much into the game of tennis and just focusing on their competition without saying, I'm playing golf. Let me see what's on people's mind. Let me look outside of my little ecosystem, myopic world. And maybe I can learn something from a sports team or an educational institution. You end up talking to the same people at the same conferences, having the same view. And then you say, well, this organization did really well. They had a great speaker. Let's go get that speaker. You tend to play copycat. And so the advice would be pay less attention to your competition and more to the broader marketplace as to what's going on and where you can make a difference. And creating excellent experiences, right? And pick one or two signatures. Come up with your own genius Mm -hmm. bar. Get something that you can't wait to share because if you can't wait to share, other people have the same reaction. That's awesome. That's so awesome. Great. So any other kind of lingering thoughts from our conversation? We covered a lot of ground. The last point was we end the book with a quote from Bill Marriott, which is the belief that success is never final. And the organizations that succeed and shift in to stay ahead always talk about yesterday's success. That's great. Thank you very much. But today's a new day. Mm-hmm. And have a bit of Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel. Only the paranoid survive. The best organizations come into the work every day and are nervous that they're going to be obsolete. And the fact that they're doing well is only an indication that it can only go one way, which is south. We better reinvent ourselves. Because the time to reinvent yourself is when your game and your company is on top, not when the house is burning and you're the last one out. Yeah, I mean, you can try (laughs) and hopefully you can be successful. But yeah, Yeah. it's hard to kind of constantly keep that mindset. Every day you go in, you have to say, yesterday was yesterday. What am I going to do today to move to, to make a difference? Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us and this interesting stuff about branding and marketing and how we can improve our organizations by looking at others and seeing what their successes were, how they weren't so successful, and how we can learn to not fall in those same pitfalls. Thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Alan gives us so much to think about in how we market and brand our organizations. For better or worse, We don't work for Pepsi, Nike, or Subway. So no matter how many constituents we have, our scope and community is limited, like this podcast. I'm never going to reach 100,000 listeners per episode, but that's not really the point. This project has a distinct identity for a distinct group of people, and I hope my listeners could easily articulate the purpose of this program. What's the identity you want your community to associate with your organization. Something that Alan has us thinking about is how we create that identity. Are we thinking about what is missing in our community? 
Are people not connecting with one another? Are they not connecting to important services? Are they not connecting to a purpose for the philanthropic dollars? Try putting yourself in your target audience's shoes, assuming that you have a well-defined audience, and think about what they are looking for. What's missing in their Jewish experience? Then fill that need. In today's world, it's no longer enough to know your what and your how. You really have to define your why. By making that simple and stamping it on everything you do, you can achieve that goal that anyone who supports your organization can easily say what your organization stands for and its purpose in this world. Think about something memorable, simple, effective, inspiring. Just do it. Taste the feeling. The happiest place on earth. These don't communicate the how or the what, but they definitely communicate the why of these companies. I'm so grateful to Alan for taking the time to share his wisdom with us. And his new book, Shift, is now available, and you can find a link on our website. One fun thing we have for you this week, our wonderful editor, Nick, put together a little splice of what you don't hear, what gets left on the cutting room floor, and I found it quite amusing. So you can hear bloopers, if you will, on our website in Alan's blog post. So a quick little fun thing I've got stuck in there for everyone. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, book recommendations, and how to start your own podcast on our website, it's who you know the podcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.